what the heart is full of. Um, and the second reading is Galatians uh, chapter 5, verses 13 to 26. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbour as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoked, and envying of each other. This is the word of the Lord. Good afternoon, Inner West. Wonderful to see you all. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Pete. I'm the pastor here, and it's just wonderful to be inside in the warm. Clearly, winter is not coming. It has come. Uh, now, we are starting a brand new series uh, today, post-Easter, on the fruit of the Spirit. Really exciting. I've been uh, looking forward to doing this for a long time. Uh, today, we are going to do a bit of an intro into the famous passage from the book of Galatians. Uh, and then in the next nine weeks, we are going to do deep dives into each individual aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people, uh, even a few special guests as we go along. I will be having a Q&A uh, this afternoon, so if you do have questions, you can text them through to me during the sermon to uh, my number up there, and I will endeavour to respond to a few uh, at the end after a few minutes of reflection. Uh, so, before we dive in, let's pray together. Gracious Father, we ask that you indeed, your spirit would be with us, helping us to see your truth and not only that, but enabling that truth to bear fruit in our lives, uh, to be not just people who believe certain things, not even just people who do certain things, but people whose character reflects the very character of the God we worship. So we ask this, Father, in the name of Jesus, for whom these things are possible. Amen. Would you like to change? Would you like to change? It's a simple question, but a pretty loaded one. <laughs> in our society, uh, some people might even find it a mildly offensive question because to ask someone, would you like to change, suggests that there might be something wrong with them. They might respond, no, I'm fine as I am. Thank you very much. <laughs> and now, while, that, while that might be the gut reaction for some, the reality is that actually most people perhaps whether they know it or not, want to grow and change. People want to change how they look, so they consult well, uh, well-being gurus and 
fitness experts and do dieting, even plastic surgery. People want to change how they feel, so they go to therapy. People want to change their lifestyles, so they change careers, change cities, move to the country, or move to the city if you live in the country. And even those really nice people who perhaps don't really feel much like they need to change probably still have those niggling problems that just don't seem to go away. Now, of all people, I think it's actually Christians who tend to want to change most of all uh, because Christians believe in this idea of sin, this deep disposition towards selfishness that leads to all sorts of real-world problems. Uh, and this seems to make Christians uh, quite introspective people. We, we think a lot about who we are and how we feel and what we do. We're keenly aware of our flaws and keenly aware that we should be better. So whether you are a religious person or not really into religion. I think everyone feels a measure of frustration that experiencing real positive change is so hard. Galatians chapter five uh, contains a message that speaks directly to this problem. Paul tells us this, that real freedom to be who you are always meant to be is possible. You can change. But you cannot change yourself. But you can change with the help of the Holy Spirit. With him, you can leave behind the old patterns and problems that you struggle with and grow in the one way that really matters, in Christ-like virtue and in godly character. And if you grow in character, actually you learn how to handle the fact that there are some things about you that you simply can't change. So we're going to talk about changing today, and I want to look at three things. I want to look at the problem, what stops us changing, the solution, what enables us to change, and the result, what does change even look like? So the problem, the solution, and the result. So what's the problem? The problem is that there's a whole lot of things that stop us changing. We are landing kind of most of the way through Paul's letter to the Galatian church. And the big theme in Galatians chapter 5 is spiritual freedom. Verse 13, Paul writes, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. People, uh, particularly in our day and age, tend to think of freedom as meaning a, a situation where I can do whatever it is that I want to do. It's about being unrestricted in plotting the course of your own life. But Paul actually argues that freedom is a bit more complex than that. True freedom, Paul says, is actually about being free to be the person that you were always meant to be. I started learning guitar at the age of 11, so quite late in life. Um, in comparison to some, uh, and that's why I'm not very good. Uh, if you've learned an instrument, you know the first few years are pretty frustrating, right? Uh, when I was 11, I was you know, uh, listening to music and listening to these amazing players and just longing to be able to play like them. 
Freedom for me would have been able to play like my heroes, to simply effortlessly be able to play to that level of skill. But not being a musical prodigy by, no, by any means, it was going to be very many years before I had that kind of skill level. In the meantime, I was going to have to start with simple songs that weren't very inspiring, playing endless scales, ugh, many hundreds of hours of practice. But I knew that if I persisted, then eventually playing would be more freeing and less tedious. And actually, that meant fighting against competing desires. Because it's far easier to play video games when you're a teenager than to do an hour of guitar practice, especially when it's not immediately very rewarding. It's a little illustration, but I think it tells us something about the nature of freedom. Freedom is not doing whatever you want. Freedom comes from sacrificing lesser desires to fulfill a greater desire. Paul says that true spiritual freedom means being increasingly pursuing greater desires. Uh, come with me to verse 16 and 17. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, the Spirit desires what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. There's a couple of really important words we need to unpack here. Uh, first of all, flesh. <laughs> what does flesh mean? Well, it doesn't mean your physical flesh and blood that kind of flesh. No, it's Paul's shorthand for uh, the, the human nature under the control of sin. While spirit for Paul is human nature under the control of God. So he's talking not about physical and spiritual, but actually two types of spiritual control, the control of sin or the control of God's spirit. That's the first one we need to understand, flesh. Uh, the second word is Desire. Uh, if you have a really old translation, it might be lusts. Now, uh, lusts I don't think is very helpful because it makes us think that Paul is talking primarily about sexual lust because that's how we note that. But uh, it's actually much deeper than that. Uh, the Greek word literally translates as not just desire, but over-desire. Over-desire. What does that mean? Well, to over-desire something is to desire it an inordinate amount. It's to want something too much. It's to place too much weight on attaining a certain thing. Paul actually uh, is saying something really important about the nature of sin, what sin is in the Bible. Sin is actually not desiring bad things Exactly. It's, sin is actually desiring good things too much and in the wrong way. In the Old Testament, uh, the word for this is idolatry. Idolatry is, at, at, in a broad sense, is making God's good gifts into ultimate things. It's to over-desire God's good gifts. So, for example, food is a good gift of God, but desire it too much and it becomes something you worship, like an idol. And you think, I can only really be truly satisfied through eating. 
Or sex is a good gift of God, but as an idol, you'll think, I will only ever experience real pleasure unless I find the ultimate sexual experience. Family is a good gift of God. But as an idol, you think, well, I will never feel accepted unless my parents or my siblings approve of me. Or my life will not have real value unless my children succeed. Over-desire doesn't actually set you free to truly enjoy food or sex or family or anything else. No, it enslaves you. Enslavement to food will mean all sorts of health problems. Enslavement to sexual pleasure will mean dissatisfaction with every romantic partner you have and likely an addiction to pornography. Enslavement to what your family thinks means you will always feel crushed by their expectations and you will always crush your children with your own expectations. Desiring good things too much turns them into things that kind of function as a savior. You look to them to save you, to to make your life what you really want it to be. And when they don't end up being very good saviors at all, when they don't come through with what you want, then all sorts of problems rise to the surface. Paul gives an incomplete list of those problems in verse 19. The acts of the flesh, that is the acts of the sinful nature, the, the outworking of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. So dot, 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 the list can go on. Uh, I won't go through that list in too much detail right now, but notice this. At either end of the list are things religious people often like to point to as obvious sins. The first three words... Uh, together describe a state of kind of uncontrolled sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage. The list ends with drunkenness and orgies, Um, not sexual orgies in that sense, but basically hard partying and substance abuse. Now, depending on who you are, you might read through that list and think, well, that's not a sin. Christians are such prudes. Or... That is sinful. Those, those people who do those things, they are so wrong. People often don't look too closely at the ones in the middle of the list. Have you ever been jealous or envious? Have you ever been divisive about, I don't know, politics? Have you ever flown off the handle at someone? Everyone can recognize, I think, their own tendencies in this list. This is a list that encompasses things that we recognize as being incredibly destructive, whether you're coming from a religious point of view or not. But Paul's point is that sinful over-desire is a problem for everyone. The over-desire of sexual pleasure or the buzz of alcohol, and you will end up hurting and destroying the relationships around you. Over-desire what others have and you will be eaten up with envy. Over-desire promotion and advancement and you'll be filled with selfish ambition. 
and you'll willingly undermine people to get what you want. Everything on this list, um, actually not just sins, they are symptoms of a deeper disease. The real problem lies in these inordinate over-desires that capture and enslave us. It comes from seeing good things as God things. So far from being the free agents we like to think we are, kind of controlling my own destiny, you know, you do you, actually we're, we're deeply influenced by this, this power that wants to trap us, that wants to control us, that wants to enslave us. It's a predicament. So what's the solution? What enables us to change for the better? Well, what made me persist in learning the guitar? What made you persist in accomplishing some great challenge or learning some difficult skill? Chances are it was because you and me, we we glimpsed a vision of what life could be like that was so attractive to us that it made us willing to pursue it no matter what we might sacrifice. It was strong enough, this pull, strong enough to overpower, at least mostly, our competing desires that might stop us um, getting there. Paul says that Christians have been shown a better vision, a better story for how life can go. He says, you were called to be free. He's deliberately evoking the story of the Exodus. God has called you out of captivity and he's shown you a vision of the promised land. So he continues in verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. The flesh and the Holy Spirit actually work in similar but opposite ways. The flesh over-desires good things and makes them God things, which become destructive things. The Spirit does not over-desire anything. The Spirit desires exactly the right things in exactly the right amount in exactly the right order. What does the Spirit desire? Well, John 16 tells us that the Spirit's job is to glorify Jesus. He is always, eternally, perfectly putting the spotlight on Christ. If you're a Christian, then the Spirit lives in you. And so his job is to give you such a brilliant vision of Christ and Christ's kingdom that you begin to desire Christ above all else, that you join the Spirit in glorifying Christ, raising him above everything. And so as Jesus takes the prime position in your life, then it's natural that you would stop over-desiring things that are lesser than him. They, these desires, they don't... It's not that you don't desire good things anymore, but you desire them in their right amount, in their right place, in their proper order. You desire small things, small amounts, and you desire big things, big amounts, and you desire the greatest thing, the greatest amount. The Spirit wants to show you that Jesus is better than your idols. He is 
better. He, he alone can bear the weight of your life. He alone is big enough, strong enough, faithful enough, consistent enough, wise enough, good enough to be your saviour. He's rest for the weary, satisfaction for the hungry, home for the wandering, reward for the striving, his safe haven for the lost, acceptance for the unworthy, forgiveness for the guilty, hope for the despondent, success for the failures, life for the dying. Jesus is better than your idols. He alone is worthy to be the object of your greatest desire. You cannot over-desire Christ, but you can under-desire him. The problem is that he so often isn't our greatest desire. And I find it so refreshing that Paul doesn't see this as particularly unusual. He says, actually, the spirit and the flesh are in conflict with each other. Romans 7, famous passage, he describes that conflict a bit uh, slightly differently. He says, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good thing I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Do you resonate with that? The Christian life is a battle between the spirit and the flesh. As a Christian, the sinful nature does not have complete control over you because the Spirit has given you a new nature. But neither are you yet completely led by the Spirit. This is the tension of living in our age in this time between times. The old flesh is not yet completely gone, but the new creation has not yet completely arrived. However, the power of the spirit is greater than the power of the flesh. And so the promise is that over a lifetime, the flesh will decrease, it will lose its grip, and the spirit will increase in your life. How does that increase happen? That's the big question. How do we change? Some have said it's basically automatic. You don't have to do anything, it will just kind of happen. And this teaching comes out of a desire to avoid any kind of faith that's based on what we do, a faith based on works, and I totally understand that. But the Bible doesn't actually teach that. Paul in Philippians tells us to work out our faith with fear and trembling. In other words, while salvation is a free gift of God, not earned by good deeds but freely given, and yet we can respond to that gift by loving God in our actions. To put it another way, God is gracious, but he did not save us to be fruitless. By ourselves, we have no hope of becoming fruitful, but partnered with the Spirit, we can see our lives bear fruit as God invites us to be part of his renovation project. I think this is what Paul means uh, in verse 24 when he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let's quickly unpack those. There's two things here. 
uh, two invitations to act. Firstly, something to see, and secondly, something to do. The thing, the thing to see, Paul puts as crucify the flesh. It's a confusing and odd turn of phrase. But remember the Spirit's job is to spotlight the glory of Jesus. The glory of Jesus particularly shone most brightly at the cross. The Spirit wants you to remember what happened there that dark day. That as our representative, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, he took on himself our sinful natures. The one who has power over all things willingly put himself under the power of sin while remaining sinless, so that when he defeated sin in his resurrection, its power was broken over us too. In this new reality, the Spirit helps us to see past our own self-deceptions because we are so good at deceiving ourselves into thinking we're not as sinful as we actually are. The Spirit unmasks the sneaky ways that sinful desires stay hidden and unmasks our own tendency to justify them away. An old scholar uh, explained crucifying the the flesh in this way. He said, it means to recognize the corruption of the flesh, and I love this, and assign it to death. In other words, it's to see sin for what it is, contemptible and corrupt, and be willing to face up to it confess it and turn from it. Because sin is still deceptive and runs deeper than we think, this can only happen if we become really good at asking questions. So rather than just saying, I'm angry, I'm sorry I'm angry, and move on, we've got to say, why was I so angry? What aspect of my sinful nature was driving that anger? What object of over-desiring is letting me down so that I respond in anger? How is this an act of the flesh? Or rather than just saying, I'm anxious. Oh, I wish I wasn't anxious. I'm sorry I'm anxious, God. We've got to ask, why am I so anxious? Why do I see my life as so fragile? What am I treating like my saviour but is letting me down and is causing anxiety within me? The Spirit invites us to see where he is shining his spotlight down into the depths of our hearts. And then up it shines to the glory of Christ to show how he died to accept you, to love you, to secure you, to forgive you, to welcome you, to show how he is so much better and how in him there is nothing to fear. The second thing is something that we should do, and that is to keep in step with the Spirit. If crucifying the flesh is like a farmer going out into a field and clearing it away of stones and debris and rubbish, then keeping in step with the Spirit is planting the good seed. It's replacing it. As we increasingly fill our vision with the glory of Christ and the natural result is an increasingly flourishing life. The vices of sin are replaced with the virtues of God as the acts of the flesh die away and the fruit of the Spirit has the chance to grow. Welcome, kids. 
So the kids are just in time to hear then. So what's the result? So if we crucify the flesh, we keep in step with the spirit, what is, what is different? How do we change? What does that look like? Verse 22. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Paul uses the metaphor of fruit quite deliberately. Perhaps he had in mind Jesus' words back in Luke 6, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit, but each tree is recognized by its fruit. Any tree planted in sinful nature will produce bad fruit. Any tree, any person planted in the spirit will produce good fruit. A heart that has been won over by Christ will see their character begin to resemble his character. Now, someone will say at this point, well, hang on though, Pete. There are lots of good people out there. Christians don't have a monopoly on love or kindness or self-control. That's true. All people are created in God's image. So we all have this instinct to, be, to want to be like him, to be like our creator. The author, uh, Melissa Kruger, has this really lovely illustration that helps us to understand the difference between the fruit of a Christian life and the fruit of someone who isn't. It's very possible to think, I should be loving or I should be kind, or I should be more self-controlled, and then grit your teeth, pull up your bootstrap, and get on with it, and do it. You can do it. But that is like someone going out and painstakingly tying apples to an apple tree with little bits of string. The tree might look from a distance healthy and fruitful, but actually none of the fruit are really connected to the tree. None of them are being nurtured by the good sap of the tree. In the same way, without the good sap of the Spirit naturally growing godly virtue, any attempt at imitation is doomed to fail. It's not the fruit of the Spirit, it's just counterfeit fruit. You might become kind, but at the same time, constantly judging those who aren't as kind as you are and being resentful to those who don't return the favor. You might become extremely self-controlled, but if someone threatens your ordered life, you'll fly off the handle at them. You might become extraordinarily patient, but deeply unloving to those around you. You might be able to put on a sheen of joyfulness, of happiness, while inwardly hiding deep sadness. This isn't a religious or non-religious or Christian or non-Christian issue, by the way. All people, Christians, just as much as anyone else, can counterfeit the fruit of the Spirit, can pull up their bootstraps and try and be these things and even display them, but inwardly, it's rotten. Tim Keller, uh, in his commentary on the book of Galatians, notes that the thing about uh, the fruit of real spirit power change is that it grows symmetrically. There are not actually fruits of the spirit. In the verse, the word is singular. It's fruit, singular, not fruits. There is only one fruit of the spirit, but it has many aspects. 
It's not enough to say, well, I may not be very joyful, but I've got great self-control. Or I'm not a very gentle person. I kind of steamroll people, but I'm faithful to the end. Or I'm not very peaceful. Actually, I'm pretty anxious, quite fearful, but I'm very kind. God wants us to be growing in the whole fruit, not just parts of it. The beauty of the fruit of the Spirit is found in its whole life symmetry. Remove one aspect and you lose something essential. Fake fruit is always shiny on the outside but has a rotten core. But when the Spirit shines the goodness of God into your house, it can't help but produce good fruit to match. And the fruit only comes when you open yourself up to seeing what the Spirit is showing you the beautiful grace and mercy of the gospel of Jesus in all of its many colors and splendors. One last thing to add before we finish. It's possible to come away from this with this vision, this idea, picture of God who is tapping his foot, waiting for you to get your act together, waiting for you to get those last fruit that you haven't quite got yet. This fruit could be seen like a holiness scorecard and we need to get each one ticked off like some sort of divine bingo. This is not who God is. If you have faith in Christ and God has welcomed you fully and completely and there is nothing that you can add to that, no matter where you are on the journey of change, he says about you, you are my beloved child, my son or my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. But Jesus also came so that we can have life and life to the full, a life deficient of the fruit of the Spirit, a life controlled by the acts of the flesh is not a flourishing life. That's why Paul says, without a hint of legalism, keep in step with the Spirit. Come alongside him and partner with his work. Make real daily commitments, decisions and directions to grow in the fruit. All of it. Put yourself in the right environments. Learn the right practices. Open the scriptures and be sustained and nurtured by the story of God. But do it not because God is waiting for you to work your way up, but because Christ willingly came down so that he could bring you, raise you up into his life, the life of God himself. So family, as we go through this series, I encourage you to do some self-assessment. See and pray that the Spirit will show you what he's spotlighting in your life. Which aspects of the fruit are you strong in? Praise the Lord. Which aspects do you need to grow in? And what is hampering you from that? What might you be over-desiring? What do you need to identify and crucify and then walk in step with the Spirit? Let's pray. Father, we pray that and ask that you would open us up to a vision of your goodness and grace, the marvelous nature of Christ and his kingdom, So we would lay aside, Father, and crucify the desires of the flesh which only lead to our destruction and to our harm and instead desire Christ above all to come into 
and encounter his grace and so be changed and so see as we work out our faith with fear and trembling what kind of life we might live with the fruit of the Spirit blossoming and growing in every way. We ask that you would help us to do this, particularly over the next nine weeks as we look into each one of these. We ask, Father, for you to do the transformative work that we so need you to do. Amen. All right, we'll have um, just a minute to let that sink in and maybe pray if you like or reflect and then if there's a question I'll very briefly respond uh, before we sing. I've never got so many questions. (laughs) It's good. I'm always much more worried when we get no questions so this is really good. Okay, there's heaps of them. I'm not going to be able to get through them all. I'll just do a few but don't worry. I will find you, hunt you down and reply to you uh, either by text message or in person a bit later if I, haven't, if, if I don't get to you because I'm aware of the time. Uh, one is, if lust means over-desire, does that, mean gluttony a ty- is it, does that make gluttony a type of lust, e.g. a lust for food? Well, actually, the one time in the Bible, in the New Testament, sorry, that Paul deliberately makes a link between idolatry as not being like literally worshipping a stone idol but in the broader sense is with, is with gluttony actually or greed or mm, I'm pretty sure it's gluttony uh, so yes absolutely uh, gluttony or greed of food is a type of lust in the sense of lust meaning if, if you term lust as being that over desire kind of idea which I think it does kind of translate to that but uh, culture has, takes lust in such a sexual way that it's hard to unpack that so um, gluttony and greed is certainly idolatrous and certainly an over-desire for food um, that has all sorts of really bad consequences. And I think in a city like Melbourne, where we really worship food and wine as being not just something that we uh, enjoy in large amounts, but even as just a, a status symbol almost, it's a big deal. Uh, now, let me move on. Doo-ba-doo. Uh, this is a good one. Um, Pete, one of the examples you gave was anxiety and how that can be linked to over-desire. What is your view of issues like anxiety, depression, bipolar, etc.? Do you think they can be medically related rather than purely over-desires? What weight would you give me to medical intervention, medication counselling, in addition to work of the Holy Spirit to address something like anxiety? It's a really, really good question, and it's easy to pull apart a person to make you only physical, and therefore solutions to your problems only medical or related, or only spiritual, and therefore only solutions to your problem are like prayer and reading the Bible more, right? But actually, we are holistic beings. We are spirit and body intertwined in ways that we can't possibly imagine. And that means that it's really easy for a spiritual issue to have uh, also physical, biological aspects to it. So yes, anxiety um, and things like bipolar depression can absolutely have a medical aspect. Uh, And I say that as a completely not qualified in medicine in any way, but based on my own learning experience, absolutely. And so that might mean that for some people, um, uh, keeping in step with the spirit might mean a variety of measures that would include spiritual things like biblical counseling or 
uh, Christian psychology or um, mentoring or, or whatever, or prayer, you know, but also um, psychiatry, medical intervention, that sort of thing. We are holistic people. We have to treat problems holistically, I think, and that involves some wisdom sometimes um, in that case. And so we would definitely recommend you seek out all sorts of uh, helpful experts in that sense. So I hope that's helpful. Happy to chat more about that with you a bit later. Um, uh, can... Oh, hang on. Multiple messaging apps make this really hard. Uh, can you talk a bit about how this series relates to the series we started the year with on means of grace? Yes, I, I forgot to put that in the sermon. So at the beginning of, this, of the year, we did a series called Deep Roots, and we talked about the spiritual practices of um, biblical meditation um, and prayer and Sabbath. Um, and we planned this series on the fruit of the Spirit quite deliberately because if the, the spiritual practices, the means of grace, the way in which God um, allows his grace to kind of penetrate our spirits and grow in us, uh, then if that's the environment in which the gospel grows in us, then the, the fruit of the Spirit should be the result of that, right? And so what we're doing now is unpacking how those practices actually produce character. After this, um, we're going to be looking at the book of James, probably the most practical book in the Bible. And that was because we actually, having good character is enough. We want to have good practice, good um, we want to live uh, what we believe and not just be what we believe. And so these are all very deliberate, helping us to move through um, what it looks like to be a Christ-centered, gospel-centered person. Uh, another, one, more, one more. The apple tree analogy is hard. Aren't all people being made in God's image given some parts of the fruit of the Spirit? Is kindness of a person not filled by the Spirit always counterfeited? Uh, it's kind of tricky. I mean, Paul makes a sharp distinction, I think, between the acts of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul would say, I think, that any good deed done without the Spirit is by its own nature um, a way of uh, establishing a righteousness for yourself, establishing a record of good deeds for yourself. And that Paul would say that God does not recognize that as anything that would contribute uh, um, to, uh, to his kingdom, right? But that's not to say, as I said before, that Christians have a monopoly on these things and there's plenty of, of good people out there who are loving and kind, self-controlled and all that sort of thing. And I think we should look at that and say, rather than going judging people and going, oh, well, you know, that's not real love. Instead, we should say, praise God, because in his grace, he allows our world to be full of good things that while might not lead to salvation are still for the preservation of the world and the, um, the preservation of our societies. And so I think that is a good thing that should be celebrated but Paul's distinction remains that if, if without the spirit every good deed is done um, as a way of creating a righteousness for yourself rather than accepting a righteousness from Christ.